Good morning. Welcome to Warehouse. It's good to have each one of you here this morning. Well, today we come to the end of a series, Naked at the World Cup, and it also means we come to the end of the World Cup, and there was moments of mourning. We get to the end of the World Cup, and things have happened. Spain is now the champion. Several players from the Dutch team should be in jail for assault, and we have all the aftermath of the World Cup. Well, one of the things that uh, is interesting to look at in this World Cup is that every World Cup has sort of a feeling of it being a, a talisman, something that has real power beyond the sport. Uh, and the truth is that civil wars have stopped because of the World Cup. And ancient antagonists have gone on the field and played a soccer game cleaner than the final because of the World Cup. And so as this World Cup, the first World Cup in Africa came, there was high hopes about the power of the World Cup and what could happen through it as this video illustrates. It's not about politics or religion or the economy. It's not about borders, history, trade, oil, water, gas, mineral rights, human rights, or animal rights. It's not about global warming, global pandemics, globalization, GDP, NATO or Kyoto. It's not about elections, sanctions, proliferations. He said, she said, my land, your land, no man's land. It's not about the stock market, black market, orange alerts, green homes, hope, change, fear or loathing. It's not about communism, socialism or capitalism, war or peace, love or hate. This is about the one month every four years when we all agree on one thing. 32 nations, one world watching. 2010 FIFA World Cup. <coughs> the World Cup came to Africa and there was concern going in that uh, that an African nation could could handle it, could handle the infrastructure and all those sorts of things. And apart from, you know, minor irritations like the Vuvuzelas, which now are in America, I went to a game Wednesday night to see uh, Bolton Wanderers, who's an English Premier League team, play a local team, and there were Vuvuzelas. And you know what? They're as irritating in person as they were on TV. So we have the legend that says South Africa gave us that, and that's unfortunate. It gave us some horrific refereeing, and, and that's unfortunate. But it actually went, other than that, without a hitch. And so maybe this World Cup achieved what they hope, and maybe it did something for South Africa that will be long-lasting. Because you see, when the World Cup started, Johannesburg is the, the leading violent crime city in the world. South Africa had a staggering unemployment rate and a percentage of HIV AIDS that was phenomenal. But at the end of the World Cup, it's likely worse. The truth is that billions of dollars were poured into the World Cup, 4.1 billion to be exact, by South African government. Stadiums were built, one of them at a cost of $150 million. But it does have a glass retractable roof. It was used four times. Let's see, that's nearly 40 million a time. Is it really true 
that the World Cup would have the power to make a long-lasting effect in the deep, deep problems of South Africa. If we thought so, we were likely naive. In the history of the World Cup, only two have not lost money, and that is the United States and Germany. This video gives a sense of what some of the feeling is in the aftermath of all that was poured in financially to the World Cup in South Africa. Lots of people is very happy that the World Cup comes to South Africa, but lots of people is very sad. Lots of people is sitting on the streets because of the World Cup. The government got lots of money to build stadiums, but they haven't got money to build us houses. There's no electricity, there's no water, there's no sanitation. Even our children is asking, where are we going after the World Cup? Trillions, millions, but I can do nothing about the situation we are living in. The people of South Africa always come last. I think only the rich of the government will benefit, but not us. So I'm waiting now. 14 years for the house. I'm on the waiting list for 22 years. I'm still waiting. Well, I don't know uh, how long we will be staying here now. It won't be long and I won't be forever. They took the people now from the streets and bring the people into Platitov because foreigners mustn't see. So we keep you here so long the World Cup must go on. They told us it's temporary, but it's not temporary. When it's winter, it's cold, it's raining inside. In summertime, it's very hot. There's no work also. What, what, what can we do? I don't know what to do. I don't know exactly what to say. This is a dumping place for people. To get out here and to go stay in a proper place where you know you've got a zinc inside, a toilet inside, a proper room, that is my wishes. Some years ago, I was in Africa and went into someone's house reminiscent of those um, settlements that were formed. And uh, one of those embarrassing moments uh, where I, as it was, it was a very small place. I was, tr I was trying to show interest and so I said, um, where's your kitchen? Just curious how cleverly they must have built the kitchen into the little shanty and he looked at me and he kind of smiled and he pointed to what would be like sort of a makeshift charcoal grill that we might see at a campground and said that's my kitchen right there. There's some staggering poverty in Africa. And in Haiti and in the Philippines and in the United States. And the staggering poverty is not easily fixed. Really. A World Cup is going to address that? 
not at all. Has no shot. Pretty walls and quick fixes do nothing about poverty. HIV, AIDS, pandemic, level of homelessness and poverty will not be fixed easily or quickly. They'll be fixed by passion and pursuit. But if we're wise enough to realize that, I wonder why we're not wise enough to realize that in our own lives. You see, this isn't really about the World Cup. It's about you and I and our desire for quick fixes and pretty walls. Poverty is a deeply entrenched issue. Our souls have deeply entrenched issues. And they linger. One common critique of the church in America is this, is that you walk into a church and you put on your smile and people ask, how are you doing? You say, I'm doing great. And you might be crumbling inside, but no, no, church is the place for pretty walls. We have some exceptions at warehouse. Church is a place for pretty walls and nice smiles. The quick fix. I have deeply troubling issues in my soul. What shall I do? Oh, I know. I'll attend a church service some. That'll do it. I have deeply flawed relational issues in my life. I'll read a book and I'm pretty sure I can get past those. I struggle with selfishness in my life. I'll give a little bit of money and certainly at that point this will be dealt with, right? I've hurt you badly by my actions. If I apologize and say it deeply and sorrowfully, can we just move on? We are enamored of the quick fix. And why not? You know why we like it? Because it's a quick fix. Seriously. I, I'm actually, if I'm honest enough, I'm honest enough to tell you that I like a quick fix. I wish quick fixes worked. I wish I could look at the issues in my life and go, here's a three-step process, and it's all done. I wish my relational issues could be dealt with in a week. I wish I could deliver a message this morning where when I deliver it to you, after 30 minutes you would go, aha, now I shall live a life of beauty and power because of this 30 minutes. Bam. By the way, if that happens, let me know because I think we need to broadcast it. We like quick fixes. But they don't work. As foolish as it is to believe that building a $150 million stadium in South Africa is going to deal with the problem of historic systemic poverty, it is equally foolish to believe that we, by reading a book, by praying a little bit, by reading our Bible a little bit, by going to church a little bit, is going to fix the deeply entrenched issues of our lives. We talk at Warehouse a lot about God's pursuit of us because we believe it's at the core of a life well lived, is the understanding of God's pursuit of us. But today I'm going to flip it a little bit and talk at the end of this series about what are we pursuing with our lives. It strikes me that nothing I've achieved in my life has happened apart from pursuit, apart from knowing what I was after and pursuing it strongly. Because here's an final opportunity to speak about soccer and have it seamlessly part of the series, I shall speak about soccer again. I, I at one point in my life, and it's been a number of years, I don't want to count how many, it's been a number of years, somewhere more than one, I could juggle a soccer ball, not with my hands, with my feet, 
a couple thousand times. And I did that. You know, how I learned to do that is I picked up a book, and it showed me the technique. It took about 30 minutes. You're supposed to laugh there. Thank you. That was good. Catherine, appreciate it. What it took was I did this. this a, my, my parents still have a, a bare spot in their yard because they have one flat spot in their backyard. And I went out there every day for an hour for four years in order to learn how to juggle. And at first, it didn't go that well, can I be honest? At first, it was pretty frustrating, and there were real temptations to give in. But for whatever crazy reason, I had it in my head. I had set a goal. I was going to learn to juggle a soccer ball, and I set a goal of 2,000. That was it. I, I, who knows where I came up with that number? I came up with the goal of, I'm going to juggle a ball 2,000 times. And when it, I kept dropping it at 12, it was a little embarrassing, and it seemed pointless, but I kept at it because I had a goal, and I had a desire, a deep passion to learn how to handle a soccer ball well. So I kept at it, and I kept at it, and then I hit 100, and then I hit 500, and then I hit 1,000. And I'll never forget the day when I hit 2,000, and I was still in control, and I caught the ball on my foot and set it down. I was like, ah! But no one was there, so the cheering was futile. <laughs> I did that because I wanted to. And so I gave myself to it. Recently, I wanted to get in better shape, and I wanted to lose some weight, and I had flitted around with it, and, you know, well, maybe I won't eat potato chips, and you know, I'll do that, and nothing was happening. And so I, because I really wanted to, I changed my diet completely. And it worked because I really wanted to, and so I pursued it. I had a clear goal in my head in both those occasions, and so I set activities about achieving that. My question is this. You may today have goals for your career. That's great. I hope you do. You may have goals for your physical fitness. Awesome. What's your goal for your soul? If I gave you 30 seconds right now and said, quickly, write down for me, who it is that God called you to be and what at the end of your day you want to be said, this is who I am. What's that? This may be a bit more challenging, isn't it? There's a, there was a guy named C.S. Lewis and he wrote, one of the things that he said which has always stuck with me is that our desires are not too strong, they're too weak is that we tend to think we are overreaching in our desires for our life. And he would say, we reach for far too little. What's your desire for your soul? What do you want? I say with some level of confusion and that I've always struggled with articulating my deepest desires. For some reason, really naming and Going after the things that the core I really want has been difficult for me to do. And there's only been a rare handful of occasions where in the really important issues I've been able to articulate that desire and because of that pursue the goal with passion. There's a, a passage in the, uh, the songbook of the Old Testament called the Psalms, Psalm 37.4, which says, Commit your way to the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. The reason why I didn't pursue the profession I was going to 
and decided instead to become a pastor was because of that verse. And it was kind of watershed for me. Because so much in life tells us, it would have been something like this, well, I could be a lawyer, and I'd probably be good at that, and I could make some money, and I could do this, and I could do that, but maybe it'd be better. Maybe it'd be a nicer thing, a better thing if I became a pastor. There was that temptation in my head to live my life based upon what I thought I ought to be and ought to do without a true sense of what my passion was and what God called me to do and to be. And then I read that verse. And I don't remember how I came across it, but I read that verse and I thought, no, the desire of my heart, what I want is I want to be a pastor. That began me on this process of becoming a pastor and doing what I do. But it came out of desire, not out of duty, not out of a sense of what would be the better way to live. My question to you all, in terms of the depth of your soul and the things that are most important, what do you want? Not what should you want? Not who, who has somebody told you to be? What do you want? Can you articulate it? If you can't articulate the desire of your soul, you'll never have it happen. You will not achieve the life God has for you. You will not experience a fullness and depth of your soul unless at some level you can articulate our d a desire and say, this is what I want. A silly desire. I want to juggle the ball 2,000 times. Without that vision in my head, I never would have done it. I would have quit at 50. How much more important when the core issue is, who am I going to be? What at the end of my days do I want to be true of me, of my heart, of my soul, of, of me? of my self-conscious I? What do I want to be true there? If at some level we cannot articulate that desire and formulate it, we will wander. Relatively aimlessly. Doing a handful of this and a handful of that. We'll put up a proverbial $150 million stadium and it'll have nothing to do with changing our life. There's a passage in a book called Ephesians, which is a book in the New Testament. It's written to a church in Ephesus and written by a guy named Paul. And in this, in this book, this letter, it has two uh, sections, which are prayers. And in each one of those prayers, Paul articulates a vision for the soul of humanity. And I want to read this to you. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is a vision for the soul. Your inner being. Christ dwelling. Rooted and established in love. The depth of the love of Christ. To be filled with all the measure of the fullness of God. 
that's God's vision for you. Is God, God's vision for your soul is that you would at some level understand and breathe in the depth of his love for you, that you would know it, that it would be core to your being that you at the end of your days would be able to say that I am filled with a full measure of the fullness of God. Our desires are not too strong, they're too weak. We set goals to stop smoking and go to church a little more often and do a little bit of service and be nicer to people, to not be such a jerk in our daily lives. It's all fine. What God says is, that, that's great. Here's the desire I have for you. That at your inner being, you may be rooted and established with a love of God that reshapes everything about your life. That you would not have a faint and vague relationship with a distant God, but that you would know the full measure of the fullness of God in your soul that that's who you would be. I promise you that you will not achieve that desire by haphazard and vague quick fixes. So, if I have successfully juggled a soccer ball 2,000 times and I have successfully lost some weight, then why have I not looked at an issue this big in this core, and why can I not as quickly and as easily artic articulate my pathway to that? Why is my life not as framed around that as it is about things like a soccer ball and food? Because I ask you the question, which will be harder? Let's see. Lose 20 pounds? end the long-term and debilitating relational issues that have plagued my soul since I was six. Hmm. The only way to deep, personal, visionary growth is to willing to start out and say, here's my problem. Here's my issue. Let's take South Africa again. If South Africa if someone in South Africa has a vision for that country, they have a vision of beauty and of hope for that country, this is where they're going to have to start. They're going to have to start with, right now, here are our issues. We have higher than 50% unemployment. We have, I believe it's about 20% of the population with HIV AIDS. We have a stunningly high level of crime and homelessness. And we have rampant unrest between people. They're going to have to start there. They're going to have to articulate what the actual problem is. If they had done that, and they're just like, if they had done that, if people, okay, here are our issues. I know we'll build a stadium. You'll never set the proper pursuits in your life until you know what you're trying to get past. Unless you can at some level, articulate what, is the, what are the deep struggles of your life. What are the issues that have not been bothering you for the last 30 minutes? But what are the things that keep popping up in your life over and over again? 
What are the things that keep you from a visionary you? From a person of beauty and courage and hope and depth? Can you name them? Can you name even one? Can you name the barriers that keep you from embracing the love of God for you? Can you name the barriers that keep you from developing intimacy with God or with anyone else for that matter? Can you name those things? Until you can name those, you cannot achieve radical transformation of your life. So, I have two challenges for you today. By the end of this time, you will not have experienced radical life transformation. This message at some level will be the least tied together in a bow of my messages, and that may be saying something. I don't intend to finish here. My goal is at the end of this series for each one of us to start. And I'm asking you to start in two particular places. And one, I'm asking you to actually write down. You don't have to do it now because you may not know what it is. But I'm asking you to write down, to articulate in plain English, with real clarity, what is the primary soul struggle in your life? What's that thing? What's the biggest barrier to a whole, full life for you? And can you write it down? Can you put it in plain English? Can you not qualify it into oblivion? Well, sometimes I... Can you write down... I struggle with being deeply ashamed of who I am. I have difficulty being honest with myself or anyone else. Despair plagues me. I find that too often I don't really care about other people. I have difficulty believing that anybody can love me. Can you name it? Can you name even one thing that plagues you? And can you put it in plain English? It's why it's harder to experience soul transformation than it is to learn how to juggle a soccer ball. My deep issue with soccer was I had no ball control. It, it wasn't that embarrassing to say, it was pretty obvious. Having to articulate the deepest issue of my soul, it's a whole other issue. Once you can articulate that, can you go before God and say, God, this is who I want to be? Can you name it? Can you give a visionary picture of you? Can you place in the end and say, God, my deep desire, that which I've squelched or avoided or ignored or thought was impossible for me, this is actually what I want. I want to be somebody who is able to embrace the love of others for me. I want to be somebody who lives free of the expectations of people around me. I want to be somebody who doesn't have a passing acquaintance with you, but actually knows you. Can you articulate even one picture of what it would look like for you to be whole? Here's a key struggle in my life. Here's a picture of what it looks like to be whole. Can you put those two things down? 
at that point, you can begin. Not finish. At that point, you can be begin. And at that point, what will happen is you will probably try lots of quick fixes. Let's be honest. We all did. But you'll realize they won't actually work. They'll never work for you. As surely as you know that you can't buy into the things that are said on TV which says you can lose all the weight you want and have the body you've always dreamed of without changing how you eat or how you exercise. Really, that'd be great. You can now have a job that you love working as little as 10 hours a week from home. You can make more money than you ever imagined. Anyone can do it. As surely as you don't really believe those things, don't believe that becoming a whole person of courage and beauty and passion can happen in a moment. It can happen easily. It happens over a lifetime. And it happens when you choose to pursue with everything that's within you. It's why duty never works on the long haul, because it has no passion behind it. In, in the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, one of the things he says is one of the keys to athletic su success is that they like it. And so they practice for hours because they want to. One of the keys to soul health is desire. Because then you will actually give yourself the things that will grow you. You become somebody who prays deeply and well and with joy because you want to have a relationship with God. You become someone who's free because you want to. There is no substitute for desire. And I say that as somebody who all my life has struggled with articulating my desires. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to take one minute, one seemingly long, eternal minute, and I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to ask God to speak to you that great struggle and give you a picture of who he wants you to be. Just one minute. God, you who know every one of our hearts, would you now speak to each in the room, whether they are far from you and have never known you, or whether there's somebody who's walked with you for years. In the place of all of our vague, half-hearted desires, I pray that God would strengthen you with power through his spirit in your, spirit in your inner being.
so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for you. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And we pray this to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. God's desires for you are greater than your own. Seek to have him speak to you and begin that pathway of living out of passion and purpose. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would lead us today. I pray that you would give us a vision for who we can be and give us a reality check on who we are one that would not crush us, but would place before us a desire and a passion to be different. I pray you would help us to crush the quick fixes in our life and live out a life of consistent, passionate pursuit of all you've made us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to be baptizing a young woman, Joe Rokos, and before we do that, I want you to take a look at her story on video. Um, about the same time that I first accepted Christ was when I switched my major in college and went into art and painting. It just really has strengthened my relationship with God and in some ways been kind of this path towards Him that when I'm, when I'm painting and when I'm creating, those are the moments that I feel closest to God. And I've just noticed as I've grown with Him, it's kind of been parallel to growing with my art and as new, new things happen in my relationship with God, new things happen in my art and there's just this kind of path that they go along hand in hand together which has been really good and that's that's the main way that i that i feel the realness of god and feel him significantly in my life is through painting and drawing and getting lost in this creation and feel his creator you know creator and i'm the creation creating and it's just kind of this nice circle of things. The community at Warehouse was really welcoming to me. Uh, right away I got involved in Studio 242 and just found artists there who were really supportive of me and welcoming before I got into a small group that was my community at Warehouse and it still is um, in some ways and it's been really good for me to connect with other artists of faith, which I hadn't really had before I moved down here. And I slowly just kind of began to move into this new new relationship with God where it was my own and I was kind of thinking and like thinking these things through and reading the Bible and seeing what that said rather than always turning towards someone else and seeing what they were saying about whatever issue or topic. and. And it just felt like it suddenly it was my own faith and it was real and it was true more so than it had ever been 
I think that getting baptized is not only the symbol of this new faith that I have in Jesus, but also just the symbol of of a willingness to move forward with him in new ways and a willingness to just kind of be at his mercy, whereas before I was maybe a little bit more reserved in some aspects of my faith. And I just think that that at this point having this symbol is just gonna just gonna be this total symbol of new life and a moving forward and just being completely free from from everything and just having this more pure relationship with God and with Jesus and I'm just I'm really excited about that.